Hello and welcome to the Fit for Life podcast with your host, Alan Fitton. In this podcast, I will be covering fitness-related subjects and my experiences to do with nutrition, building muscle and weight loss, to name a few, and how, above all, to keep fit for life. Welcome back to the uh, Fit for Life podcast. Uh, this is episode 10. I'm joined with another uh, incredible guest here, one of my, uh, my good friends, Sam Jella. And um, we're going to be interviewing him about the uh, extraordinary life experiences he's been through and what he does do today. Um, a little short kind of uh, introduction to, into who he is and what he is. Um, he played tennis at a, a professional level for his country. Um, he now play, coaches players across the world, don't he? Um, he's um, sponsored by Head himself. He's now a motivational speaker. Um, he's a book writer. Uh, you have one hell of an incredible work ethic. I think we met a few weeks ago and had a chat and he opened up to me about the work you've done the past few years. It's truly, truly incredible. Um, you've done martial arts in the past. Um, you do a lot of charity work uh, with Sienna, Sierra Leone, obviously bits with your home to give people the same opportunities that you've had, which is truly incredible. Um, so I'm going to shut up talking now because I'm sure people hear my voice enough. Um, so let's hop into you know, who, who you are and what you're doing today. Thank you so much, Alan, for having me here. We've been friends for such a long time now, and through sports and activities, we met many, many years ago. So I'm Sam Jallo. I was born in Sierra Leone and um, grew up in Sierra Leone, obviously, and until the Civil War started. And then after that, um, I found myself playing a sport which, uh, you know, my dad uh, considered to be a rich white man's sport, <laughs> which I'll talk about. Uh, but for now, uh, for what I do is um, I'm traveling as an international coach, working with an American player. And also I'm an author with uh, two books now being published and um, also winner of the BBC Inspiration Award and the Queen's Voluntary Service Award uh, this year, 2022, before she passed away. And also I do a lot of public speaking, motivational speaker, and also I more consider myself as a storyteller because I like to tell my story and help to motivate people as well. So, yeah, so this is uh, where I am at the minute and doing more writing and more speaking and also engaging tennis and community work to help people. Incredible, incredible. And what, what a story you have to, to share. What is, is one of his first books here. Um, absolutely incredible. Um, and it's interesting what you also write about what made you do the book as well. <laughs> the the yeah. thing that happened prior to that. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, though, we, we met years ago, didn't we? Yeah. I remember on DW on the front. Yeah. At the first, yeah I think exactly. it was the first gyms I went to and you invited me to um, a charity barbecue you were doing. Yes. Which yes. was probably with Sherry alone, wasn't yeah. it? That was yeah. the first time we interacted. Yeah. Um, so we've crossed paths many times for so the past few years, haven't we? Yeah. Yes. Um, but I think we've always had the same kind of attitude and work ethic. So yeah. incredible. Um, so... Now we want to open a bit more in depth, um, obviously about your past. Um, so tell me about what it was like to be obviously brought up where you're from um, and what you've gone through to get to where you are today. Well, I was born in Sierra Leone in 1982 and um, in a very, uh, the place I was born, Tembe Town, it's like one of the worst slums in the capital city. When I say slum, I mean there's a place with no running water, there was no uh, sanitary service there. And, um, you know, there is no shop, no supermarket, no hospital. And 99.9% .9 of the people who were in Tembe Town at that time were all uneducated, you know, poor people strive to probably make 50 cents a day just to live. And my parents were no different. They were uneducated. Uh, like I said, my mom and dad had three to four jobs, which to work uh, throughout the week. 
My dad was an electrician by day, security by night, a handyman. Uh, when he's not busy doing the other jobs, he can fix anything just to make sure that uh, he gets some money to sustain the family. And my mom, she has a garden where she grow up vegetable that she sells and she also goes to the jungle and cut woods and also uh, burn charcoal because charcoal we used to cook a lot and uh, use it to cook in Sierra Leone by then. So they had a painful, you know, painful life, you know, very hard, very tough. And also with that poverty, they tend to have a lot of children. So mm. my parents decided to have 11 of us. And, you know, when you're that poor to have 11 children, I think it brought a lot of uh, constraint to the family. But poor people tend to have that. And it's a traditional thing in Sierra Leone where they believe that um, by having more children, uh, there will be a possibility that one of them will go on to be successful. Mm. You know, as in England, we said, uh, when you're successful, you become the breadwinner of your family. And as my South African friend said, uh, you become the uh, black tax, meaning you're <laughs> going to pay for everyone. Yeah. So I always said, uh, little did I know that my family was, you know, preparing me to be the black tax of the family, which since then to now I've been paying for everyone. But, you know, growing up as a kid, my memories were really good. I said, Tembe Town, as bad as it was, uh, it was a magical kingdom, you know, because for some other reason, because of the community spirit, mm. uh, we would find one meal a day to, you know, to survive. And that one meal is all you get for the day. Occasionally, you have two meal, uh, which is very rare. Mm -hmm. But again, as a community, we stood together. And, but also in terms of my own childhood, uh, unfortunately, like I said, because of the lack of medical facility in Sierra Leone, and at that time when I was born, Sierra Leone had the highest mortality rate. So, so many kids were dying at birth. Women dying, giving birth was like 10,000 out of 7.5 million people. So it's quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And so my mom had lost three boys uh, before me. So uh, when I was born, they, they had a traditional beliefs that... Um, because of they were losing their boys, they, they thought that there is an evil spirit or some kind of devil, mm -hmm. which basically didn't like them to have a male child. So because of that reason, uh, my mom and dad decided they're going to give me a girly name in order to convince this devil that uh, I wasn't a boy, I was a girl. So, and they did. So they named me Pore, you know, seven days after I was born. But again, thankful to that, to my parents for critical thinking. And I would say 40 years later, here I am, you know. <laughs> you had tr tr tricked the devil. <laughs> yeah, tricked the it devil. Works. I said, yeah. uh, you know, I, I was uh, doing a speak where I said, that devil must have been really dumb to look at a face like mine and think that <laughs> I was a girl. But thanks to my parents, and um, I'm still here. So growing in Tembetan was really tough, and it was hard. And um, like I said, to survive a day, it was like almost uh, survival of the fetus. Mm. But then when I was uh, five years old, turning six, my parents sent me to an early school because my dad never been to school. My mom never been to school. None of my other siblings were going to school because uh, it was a thing as well in Africa, which is changing now that girls must be at home, work and help, you know, the parents cook and then get married and be a children. And so my parents concentrate on me to go to school because mm. they didn't want me to end up like them. So I started school when early school when I was five because I was growing bigger and faster. And so I can remember in the first time when uh, we had our first results uh, from the military school where I was going. And um, I was running home to show my parents the, the results. Well, not that they can read or neither do I, but uh, my teacher told me, oh, you've done really well. So as a kid, I was so happy to receive this yellow 
you know, uh, page which shows what I've done That's during my first time, certificate kind like of thing. a certificate yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of thing, your results. So running home, my pa- my mom was in there. I knew that my dad, obviously, he was an electrician. He would be somewhere in the city working. And my mom, I knew if she's not at one market, she'll be on the other side. So I took off running and on the way, I got to a busy road junction. And um, as a kid, obviously, there was road work going on and noisy machines and stuff. So I lost patient kind of waiting because I just want to go see my mom and then decided to run through the road. Next thing you know, a big bang, a car just knocked me for about 10 yards and break both my legs, cut my lip in yeah. twos. And um, so I lose all my teeth by 10. And uh, so the, the driver, because we didn't have ambulance those days, so the driver took me you know, to the nearest hospital, only hospital we have at that time in the whole Western area where I live. Uh, which is the 34 military hospital. So the news, you know, bad news traveled fast. Uh, Somebody went to the market and told my mom that, uh, you know, Miss Jalo, your son has been killed by a car and his body has been taken to the military hospital. So if you want to go check out. So my mom, uh, barefoot, she ran from the markets all the way to the hospital. And there I was all bandaged up and, you know, but the doctor, thankfully, they, you know, they, they took me on into the hospital. I spent over two months, you know, trying to recover. They got my legs together. So thankfully, I survived. And I said, well, maybe the devil has found out <laughs> I wasn't uh, uh, a girl in the first <laughs> place. So he's <laughs> come back for his revenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I survived that. And three months after surviving that, when I think things couldn't get worse and my... My dad, uh, poor as he was, he had an offer that he wouldn't resist. So the landlord who owned, owned the corrugated house that we live and saying, you know, in that house we had no bed, no electricity, and no cheer, nothing. The most valuable thing that my dad had in the house, apart from us, the people, is a radio which looked like it was a thousand years old. This radio, it spent more time trying to fine-tune it when he had a break than actually <laughs> listening to it. So... You know, so everything was really tough and we slept on the floor, no bed. My parents got cardboards, which they found, you know, in the dustbin. And that's where we used to sleep, me and my siblings, cousin and everyone. And not forgetting during the raining season, we had monsoon rain. So we have leak on the roof and mom will wake up at night because dad will mostly be security in and try to put tins and cans and stop the water from dripping on us. And like I said, we have visiting friends like rats and cockroaches and snakes and, mm. you know, all this kind of creepy crawlies. But it was magical, you know, living with my siblings. So when my dad had the offer from the uh, landlord that uh, they want to adopt a child and my dad took it and the guy said to me, you know, if I can adopt your son, uh, I'll make the house rent three times cheaper. So my dad didn't think about it whatsoever. He just go, yeah, you can have him. So, yeah, I remember uh, exactly when my new uncle came to pick me up. My mom had put a few of my clothes in a black plastic bag. I had no shoes. And then um, I remember crying a lot because I didn't want to leave my mom. I didn't want to leave my siblings. The the magic of Timbertown, you know, as poor as we were, it was such a magic place because you run around, you know, with your friends and you understand the community. So, Just jump in a second. How, How did... How did they have a conversation with you? What did they say to you? So, so 
Uh, in Africa, when you when somebody's been adopted, it's not the same like in England where paperwork has to be done. No, 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 you not. know, uh, your dad just tell you, well, you go into this family and that's about it. He's the king. <laughs> You you don't ask questions. You don't um, no. you don't argue with them. You just do as you're told. Right. And so um, so when my dad made the decision that I have to go, and to be fair with him, I think it wasn't the, because my dad hates me or anything. It's just because he wanted me to be a doctor. He wanted me to be educated. Because my dad uh, worked for a company called uh, the PNT Postal and Telecommunication for Sierra Leone as an electrician for 36 years and they were paying him less than three quid a month mm. you know so him looking at all this hard job he was doing and still struggling mm. and that's why he wanted me to have an education so i don't end up like him so those people adopted me and they guaranteed that i will go to school they were responsible for my school and everything so he decided like well well yeah this is good for my son yeah. so yeah, so yeah. to be fair with him he want the best for me but I think uh, when my adopted uncle took me, we walked all the way um, to my new home, uh, which was a much better home than where I live in Tembe Town, from the whole corrugated house to a proper well-built uh, concrete house, you know, with wow. electricity and everything and and this. But I remember him saying to me, oh, you're going to meet uh, my mom, who is going to be your grandma, and, um, you know, she's going to look after you. And grandma, I remember she walking onto the door. She was 86 years old. She had such a mean look on her face. And she said to me, um, what's your name? And I said, I'm uh, Pore. And then she looked at me and said, well, from today, your name is Sam. So you're not Pore anymore. So that's how I got the name Sam when I was six years old. So then I become Sam Jalo. And uh, as when I grow older, I had my go back to my original name. So I kept my adopted name, Sam Pore Jalo. So yes, living with grandma was really tough because um, uh, they, what I didn't realize is I almost become like a slave, meaning I got to do a lot of work in the morning. So our warm water for the uh, uncle and then there was uncle's sister who was 56, 7 at that time. Uncle was 65, grandma was 86. So I'm living with all these old people. Mm. I got to help to clean the compound and we have you know five cats and seven dogs so i got to look wow. after all the dogs which they become my great friends the dog yeah. and the cats and um so yeah i live in this compound where i was not allowed to go out i was not allowed to do anything and um, no swearing no using any bad language no stealing so grandma was pretty much like a military commander mm. but in other words uh constant whooping was part of the punishment i think i was getting an average of three beatings a week so the reason why I was getting beat, if um, my first beating took place, I'll never forget this because that was such a bad beating that uh, I remember thinking to myself, wow, I'm here for some good whole whooping from this mama. <laughs> because as a kid, uh, when you sleep, obviously I used to wet the bed. We were in the bed. Yeah. You know, I was only six years old. And I remember the first day I went to sleep, grandma wake in the morning smelling the pillow was we with. I slept on the floor. And she said, have you wet your bed? And I said, no, um, because I was shy and I was afraid. Yeah. So, right. so grandma realized that I've done it. So she said, I told you your name is Sam. Sam is in the Bible. Sam doesn't lie, doesn't steal. So grandma whooped me viciously. And wow. I can remember sitting out in the yard crying with all the dogs and thinking, wow, I don't want to be here. I want to be home to my mom and dad. Mm. 
But um, that whooping continue. If grandma sent me, she will give me like a time. Say, I want you to go to the shop and buy this. I need you back here in five minutes. If I come five minutes, 30 seconds, I get whipping for that. You know, if, uh, if I'm afraid about something, they ask me and I lied about it. And I got serious whooping because I was always scared of grandma because I knew somewhere, somehow, there's going to be some whipping waiting <laughs> for me. Somewhere. <laughs> So, so that continues for many years and I was with them for three years. And one of the last beatings that I took uh, from grandma that gave me the, the hedge to actually move out is because uh, she asked me to go buy kerosene, a gallon of kerosene. Mm. Because in Sierra Leone, even though they have electricity in the house, there is power cuts 70% of the time. Oh, well, okay. So uh, for people who have money, they will buy kerosene. In my case, in Tembetan, we did use kerosene lamp, but that was a different lamp, which is made out of a milk tin, and we put uh, like some wick into it, and then it sucks the kerosene and burn, you know, which in the morning, our nose is always so black, like exhaust pipe oh. from the fumes that come off the lamp. But with grandma's side, they have a proper lamp, which had a nice shade and stuff like that. So that was like this kind of European holding days lamp, but it used kerosene. So I took the gallon, grandma gave me a money and a gallon and said, go to the gas station. I want to see you back here in half an hour. So here I left. On the way, I met some kids uh, playing football. You know, I love football as a kid. So they didn't think about it. I just asked the kids if I can join in. They said yes. So I put my gallon down and um, went barefoot and I was playing football for over an hour. Mind you, grandma said half an hour I should be back. And I've played for over an hour. And when we finished with the football, about time for me to go and I check my pocket for the money. I couldn't find it. And now I'm in trouble because I haven't got the money. <laughs> I haven't got the, the kerosene. Nope. I've been over half an hour late. So, yeah. you know, I knew that this is going to be terrible beating for me. And I prepared myself. I got two of my toes bleeding and this kind of stuff from playing football, hitting my toes against the little rocks on the field. And I wasn't even concerned about you know, my toe being caught or all this kind of thing. All I was thinking is I just want to get home, get it over with, and then I can move on. Yeah. So, yeah, I went home and grandma stood there and she asked me, why have you come so late? And I explained my feet was so dusty. And she said, where is the kerosene? I said, I lost the money. And just as I told grandma, I lost the money. And this uh, old lady went vicious with me and whooped me from head. And obviously they asked me to take my clothes off and my shorts. And you have to be bought naked so they whoop you so that the pain, you, <laughs> you, you will never forget this pain. So yeah. I took that kind of beating wow. and that's when I was, I was uh, nine years old by then. So I've lived with them for quite a while and I said, you know what, I need to get out of here before these people kill me. Mm. You know? So in 1991, I decided to leave. So one day I take a run and I was on the street so I become homeless. You know, uh, I couldn't go back to my dad because my dad, I made a first attempt running and I went to my dad and he sent me back. So he said, uh, I belong to those people and I should never come back home. So, you know, so I was on the streets, uh, living place to place, sometimes with my cousins, sometimes with friends, sometimes I would sleep on the same market where my mom used to sell. Mm. I would sleep on the tables at night. And then in the morning, uh, I would leave because people would come to do their business and then move somewhere else. And then I tried and move into my cousins because I wanted to continue my education. I want to go to school. I don't want to miss school. So I was selling for people fruits. 
I said all about all this in my book. I was selling fruit for people, so in return, they helped to pay my school fee. Mm. So after school, I would go do trading and selling ice, yogurts, whatever I could do yeah. to make sure that I don't uh, end up you know, illiterate because I promised my dad that, yes, I'll have my education. So, you know, so that was bad. But some of the good things I took from grandma is that uh, she was the first person to actually start teaching me to read and write. So grandma started teaching me how to read two letters, three letters. So she did help because my mom and dad, uh, they couldn't help me read or write because, um, you know, they've never been to school and stuff. So I took some very good thing and grandma made me fast on my feet because, you know, <laughs> because there's a whip waiting for me every time if I'm late from going to play. So... Out of those punishment, I did learn to be very prompt with time, to be very much, uh, you know, take everything seriously and responsibility is given to you. You must do it. And so, but sadly for them, uh, but for me, fortunately, I left. And like I said, the war started in March 1991, uh, whilst I was on the streets. And then um, that same year, my mom and dad, they, they separated you know, after being together forever, yeah. almost like forever. And um, so my mom moved to a place called Hill Station, so up the mountain, and then um, that's where she was staying. So I decided, well, my mom really loves me, so I'm going to move in with my mom. So I, and then I moved with my mom. So and that was it. And then my life took another turn. So, uh, yeah, so moving with my mom, um, like I said, in Hill Station, and that was really good because uh, 10 years from where my mom actually live this little house uh there lies uh, three tennis courts mm -hmm. and these tennis courts were built in uh, 1904 by the british settlers who were in sierra leone so like i said hill station is up the mountain it was cooler it gets very cold temperature in the raining season because we don't have winter it's only two season drying season and raining season yeah. so um so there was less mosquitoes up there and so the the Europeans who settled in Sierra Leone loved to live in that place so they built these tennis courts for their own social you know activities after work so they can meet and then train but I could also remember when I was a little kid before even starting school my mom used to take me to the jungle with her so we would pass this tennis court all the time yeah. And coming back down, uh, my mom had a big bundle of wood on her head, which can be weigh up to 30 kilos. Or sometimes she had a bag of charcoal, which is like a, those 50 kilos bag. You know, I mean, it wouldn't be heavy as 50 kilo, but those 50 kilo rice sacks, you fill it in with a charcoal. So probably again, 20 kilo of charcoal in her head. And then, so we'll come to that, uh, the side of the tennis court, you always put the wood or the coal down. And I'll be carrying a little stuff, maybe a wood or something for my mom. And mm -hmm. we'll put it down, we'll have water. And my mom will have something to, as like a snack, just to have a rest. Because this is like six mile walk every day up the mountain. Wow. So, and then I'll wander to the tennis court. I always on the fence, you know, looking this beautiful sport. And all I could see is all white people, you know, in their well-dressed, nice shoes and beautiful rackets. And they're hitting these fluffy yellow balls back and forth. Mm. And you usually you don't see many black people will play. And yeah. just white people. But then I would see a lot of young kids around running after the ball. And like a ball boy for them. So, but here we are. And I've always loved that sport. So I was really transfixed with it. And I said, wow, this is a beautiful sport. But then in 1991, when my mom, you know, moved into this new house... And um, when I say house, it's like a 
you know another hood again with yeah. a lot of this kind of bungalow and stuff where poor people live and um so yeah so i was so close to this sport i've been seeing all the time but also going to school there is a popular sport in sierra leone called hand tennis and this yeah. is what poor people play with bare hand because they can't afford to buy a racket or anything so insane. it's insane That's it's an, it's, a, insane. Yeah. it's a national sport actually which i played so uh, i was very good at this at school and i could remember a few times kids would actually bet on me during lunch you know, bet on lunch and things. So that's how we get things to eat. To so say, oh, yes, uh, Sam will win because Sam is good. So I'm always winning. If I play 10 matches, I'll barely lost any. Because yeah. I was that good. I was very, very athletic and stuff like this. So when I came to the tennis court there, that spot was also popular. So I met a, a good friend of mine who became my angel. He became my superhero, Alimami. So yeah. Alimami was very good at hand tennis. He was slightly taller than me. I'm six foot two now, so... It was like a grow up as a six foot three guy. So Ali Mami was really good at hand tennis and we started playing and then I started beating him in hand tennis. And then and I remember he always said, wow, nobody else beats me here except you because we become very competitive. And then we move it further. There's another popular sport in Sierra Leone, uh, which is called uh, boat bat tennis. So we caught a piece of plywood you know, like a bat. It's more now like paddle tennis. Yeah. Because I could remember when I moved to Spain um, in 2014 and I was working in an academy there and I could remember the guys, they uh, said, oh, Sam, have you ever played paddle? I go, what is paddle? It's a paddle tennis. I said, I've never seen paddle tennis. And so we take you. So one afternoon I played against Division One player paddle tennis and I was slam dunking tennis, the, the ball, over the fence and the fence are like, I don't know, 20 foot high, you know, volleying and doing. And the people said, you told us you never play paddle tennis. You've never seen it. I say, yes, I've never seen it. But in Sierra Leone, I used to play board bat tennis, which is similar (laughs) to that. The only only difference is that uh, uh, paddle tennis, you're locked in a cage. It's like a cage fight. And so you, you, it's a half, the, the idea is like a squash and tennis together. Okay. Right. You know, and then so the ball can rebound from the back wall, the side wall and stuff like that. But we don't have that in both bats. So it took me a while to work those things. But my volleys and overhead and stuff was really good. And the paddle bat, obviously, mm. was exactly similar to the bats we used to use for tennis in Sierra Leone. Wow. I was, I was lucky to see one of those when you, you talked. Yeah. To see that in person. Yeah, so I become like a board bat champion. And what was the turning point there was, um, uh, I remember once he was a Sierra Leonean Lebaniseman uh, who's called Mr. Raymond Sayon. But his uh, nickname is Raymond Breeze because he, he was a musician who sang a song called Don't Freeze the Breeze. So if you freeze the breeze, everybody will die. So, um, so anyway, Raymond Sayon and... Um, he came one day to to play his tennis. So he met me and Alimami. We were playing best of five tiebreak sets. So he's first to 10 points. Mm-hmm. And then we're playing five sets. We're playing on a concrete floor at the back of the court, which was in paint. It's very rough, like a sandpaper. And there's all kinds of bombs there and there. And we were playing this. And I could remember also I got three toes hanging off. My nails were hanging off, bleeding. You can see my blood on the court and... And this guy was looking at me and Halimami playing against each other. I didn't want to lose. He doesn't want to lose to me. We just keep going back and forth. And then uh, we went to five set, the fifth set. So it was two sets also. We got to play the fifth set to win. 
and we're just going back and forth grunting and playing it was like nearly 40 degrees heat barefoot and then i end up beating alimami wow. and when i when i won i could remember raymond sion stood there clapping so much and he came over to me and said boy your oh boy if somebody could put a racket in your hand you were going to be a national champion so he really uplifted my spirit so what yeah. he started doing is because we didn't have racket, we couldn't afford it, you yeah, know, yeah. and then racket was too expensive. I think that's the difference with, with your hand tennis. It's very much a sport you could play that you didn't have a choice. Cause yeah. You, 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 not like here, you go to a school and be given yeah. a, 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 a tennis racket. racket. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> it was my mind bumbling. You know, it's given these things just by go-to. Yeah. You didn't have a choice, so you just... Yeah. It's something that you could play for free and something you get, get good at and adapt and that's what you did. Yeah, and it helped my hand-eye coordination because if you can hit a fast ball, I mean, we feed the ball like 40, 50 mile an hour and we're hitting that with beer hand. It's pretty yeah. much like playing cricket with beer hand. And, um, you know, and and this helped with your coordination. I could hit uh, the ball with my backhand, with my forehand. And I remember doing that here with kids. I got actually got videos and these kids, dad said to me, I've never seen anything like this. This is impossible. How could you hit a ball that hard and not mm. even feel pain? I go, no, it's not painful. But when they tried it, the kids are screaming like, oh, it's painful on my hand. But anyway, so Raymond, every time he comes to play his normal tennis, I'll come from school and he'll give me one of his rackets and then I'll hit with him. When I pick a racket up, it's almost felt like I've been playing since I was born. There was, wow. you know, the, the hitting the ball was so natural and because I've been playing board bats and, you know, hand tennis... And um, so it's like it's an extension of your arm, yeah. Isn't it? It's like it's, part, it's meant to be part yeah. of your arm. It's just uh, you got a bigger hand now yeah, with yeah, the racket yeah. face because those days, uh, the racket, the smaller face, are like 90 square inch, the racket face, some are 85. They were they're like the wooden one, they were really tiny, yeah, but still like four times bigger than your palm. So, yeah, <laughs> so it gives you a good uh, sweet spot to hit the ball. So that becomes really good, and that's how I started. But also at the age of t- between 10 and 11. I also made another discovery which completely changed my perspective about tennis. So Alimami and another kid, they were saying to me, you know, Sam, um, you know, so-and-so who have gone to play for Sierra Leone in the ITF in Togo, they're coming tomorrow. And I go, excuse me, they go where? He said they went to Ghana, Nigeria and Togo and they go to play for Sierra Leone. I said, how old are these kids? They said, oh, these are just uh, 12 years old, 14 years old. And I've been trying to play tennis for this long. I didn't even realize that these things goes on. Yeah. So anyway, and I and he said, yeah, he said, they, but you know, uh, they, they, they give them also allowances. These guys, they have so much money. I said, how much did they give? They said they gave them 250 US dollar. And mind you, my dad is working for less than three quid a month. So mm-hmm. let's say, you know, less than $4 a month. And here they send, they give these kids 250 US dollar. As a poor kid, that's a lot of money. So, and I'm thinking like, wow, I really want to have that money because in my head, I'm figuring out if I get that, that $150 alone is enough to sustain my family for half a year. And then I will be able to pay my school fee and then I can get shoes, I can get this. So in my head, that was my kind of thinking. Mm. And then he also said, you know, they give them national tracksuits. I go, well, that's even better because I want to have a national tracksuit. I want to be in one of these, you know, I want to play for my country. So my entire life, what drove me so crazy to play tennis, 
becomes about that $250 yeah. in the national track suits. And I could not stop because every day that becomes my dream. That was my motivation for being on the tennis court. That was why I wanted, I want to help my mom. I didn't want to see my mom every day going to the jungle, cutting wood, burning charcoal, doing all this kind of thing. I didn't want to see my mom, you know, struggling. And I want to really help my, my mom. And also, I can remember going down at that time because uh, I was growing now and my dad has come to time that I'm not go never going to live with my adopted family. Mm. So I went to him and told him, I said, look, dad, um, I'm going to be playing tennis. This is a sport that I like. I want, you know, to play and become a champion. <laughs> and my dad said to me, you know, if I ever see you touch that rich white man's sport, I'm going to cut all your fingers. And I was really scared of my dad, obviously, at that time. But um, it didn't bother me because I knew I was living with my mom. So I go, okay, if he doesn't want to support me, it's fine. I'm living with my mom, so it doesn't mean anything. But I just wanted to have that connection with my dad and let him know. You know, because like I said, he wanted me to be a doctor. So mm -hmm. I went in and uh, me and Alimami were training. And then I, was, I had a wooden racket and then I started playing. And everybody started noticing that, wow. By the time I was 12 years old, I started beating everyone, including Alimami, who was two years older than me. And um, except uh, one boy who wasn't living in my club, but in my club, I would beat everyone. And um, so in 1995, there was a national tournament. I was 13. And in the national tournament, um, that's where they selected the players to go represent Sierra Leone. So in each category, you have to be in the final to be a finalist, to be able to have the selection. So right. they got the under 12 boys and girls, under 14, under 16, and 18. So those are the junior categories. So I went for the under 14. So here I was, 13 years old, playing in my first nationals. And I found myself in the quarterfinal, just brushing through all the other players. So when I got to the quarterfinal, and the day I was playing, there was a white American guy stood outside. Every time I'd you know, the point is over. I could see this guy just stood there looking at me, but talking to a national coach. So anyway, when I finished, I won the quarterfinal, came out, and then the coach said to me, he's a guy who passed away a few years ago, and he said to me, he said, uh, PJ, because that's the way they call me, my initial yeah. uh, Porejalo. Yeah. He said, did you see the guy who I was talking to? I said, yes. He said, he's one of the sponsors, and this guy, they work in a mining company called Sierra Rutile. Rutile is some kind of um, is some kind of uh, mineral which is they use for plastic and other for paint and other stuff aluminium or whatever they use these things for, yeah. and um, Sierra Leone is among the top five countries that has this mineral in the world. Wow! So anyway, so this guy they sponsored the tournament, so he was there to observe, and then he find it's very interesting that here I was playing under the forty degree heat, yeah. barefoot playing best of three sets. <laughs> So he asked the coach, why is he playing barefoot? He said, well, he can't afford to have shoes. So anyway, the following day, and the coach told me, he said, he said he's going to come tomorrow. He's going to bring you uh, some gifts. So uh, funny enough, the next day, I uh, went there, and this guy stood there with a smile on his face. And as soon as I walked down, and he said, uh, uh, yeah, I brought these shoes for you. So he gave me as a present. And I didn't know what to make of the shoes. I was happy, but at the same time, I'm thinking, well, you know, I've never played tennis with shoes. I don't know what this is going to feel like if I have this on my... And, and I was playing, imagine I was playing the most important match of my life. 
which is the semi-final. All I needed to do is to win that mm. and then get to the final. $250 will be my national track suits and then a trip abroad to three different countries. Wow. So, and put the shoes on, went in, first sets, realized that mm -mm, this was a wrong mistake. Yeah. I couldn't move. My feet felt heavy, felt like somebody just super glued onto my, the shoes. And because running, obviously, is my strength. You know, I'm fast. Grandma has really trained me with all those whooping moments that I got to run here and there. So running has never been a problem for me. I could run so quick, uh, back and forth, uh, you know. Yeah. But then when that was taken away from me, I find out I lost the first set. So when I lost the first set in the middle of the second set, and uh, these shoes become such a burden, and I went to the umpire by then, it was also a national question. I said to him, please, sir, can I take these shoes out? They're absolutely killing my feet. And the look on his face, almost <laughs> like <laughs> I was like some prehistoric trouble kid. And he said, uh, you can take them off. But he looked at me like I was so ungrateful, you know. Yeah, I understand. And, yeah. And, but for me, it wasn't to that. I was losing my dream. And yeah, that was yeah. all about this. It's not about the shoes. So anyway, took the shoes off, back with my barefoot, won the second set. I go, yeah, this is like it. So I was so close to my dream. But unfortunately, I lost in the final set. And I was absolutely furious, fuming. I laced the shoes together, put them around my neck, uh, cry all the way home, blaming this guy. Why would he bring these shoes? You know, if I didn't have this distraction, I could have won the first set and then the second set. And I blame him, cry. Four miles, I walked all the way home to my mom. And I remember Halimami was encouraging me and saying, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine, you're getting close. And the guy who I lost, though, is the number two junior players in the, player in the country. Wow. So I was then becoming like the number three, yeah, you yeah. know, three, four in the country because there was like 16 of us. Well, 32 of us who were equally good, but 16 of us who were really in a very good level. And so to get two players out of 32 players, it's very small margin you know, for errors and is the possibility to make it to the national team was very slim and this kind of stuff. So, but I learned something from that losing that uh, if you want anything in life, you, you need to keep working harder and you're going to have setbacks. So those setbacks taught me very good lesson. I had a coach by then who also passed away, my first ever coach. And he said to me, you know, uh, losing is not a bad thing. It's something that you can uh, dwell on. You can practice more. You're getting closer. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. You know, don't act. He used the words, don't act like a sick dog walking around here crying and thinking you don't want to play tennis. Just go out there and play and enjoy it, you know? Mm -hmm. He said, um, some of the things he said to me, you know, you didn't burn walking. You didn't burn speaking. You learn all this thing. You fall before you can walk. So just get on. And I can tell you, Alan, there is a wall on the end of one of the tennis courts. It's like a 10-foot wall. Mm. I was hitting ball against this wall so much that people around the area become noticed about my aggression against the wall. Really? Oh, yes. Because the sound that the ball used to make when I hit against the wall is like nothing else. Everybody used to say, goodness me, it's him again. PJ is on the wall again. <laughs> it's like I went to war. <laughs> Yeah. Between me and the wall, I was completely having a battle that I don't want to lose anymore. I want to win because now I know every year there's national, there's opportunity. Yeah. And I would train eight days a week from Monday wow. to Monday. After school, I'll run to the wall. And I remember the first time I ever even had a tennis ball was from a deputy German ambassador, mm. a lady. 
Uh, I can remember her first name was Agnes. I can't remember what her German second name was. And she used to be coached by my coach. Mm. So every morning she would come and play tennis before she go to work. So this morning I was on the wall hitting. Boom, pow, I was hitting this ball. It was dark. She walked up because she would come early, wait in the car when coach wake up and then they start their lesson because she has to go back to work uh, very first thing in the morning as a deputy ambassador. And I was hitting the ball against the wall. So she could hear the ball sound. She couldn't see me or yeah. the ball or whatever was going on. Right. So she walked slowly. She go, is that you, PJ? I go, yeah. I said, what are you playing? I said, uh, I'm training. So I took the ball uh, and then she said, can I see what you're hitting? So I showed it to her. So what I was hitting was is the plastic underneath the, the ball, the felt has come off the ball. So it was only ordinary plastic. Right. So the, in the plastic, that's all I had. So when you hit the plastic, it, the sound is different from a normal tennis ball because the cushion on top of the felt yeah, gone. is gone. Yeah, so yeah. it sounds like a bullet so <laughs> when you hit against the wall. So that's the sound that people hear, the pop sound all the time. Right. So she went to her car, took a new Wilson tennis ball, four in a thing and gave it to me. I tell oh. you what, I slept with those balls on my side of my corner bed. For like a week, I wouldn't even open them. I took them to school, brought them home. That was the best gift ever. Wow. So yeah, so after the first disappointment of losing in 1995, taught me some good lesson. And then, um, you know, I kept trying uh, when I was 14. There's always either I lose to this same guy in the semis and then I try when I was 15 and I was losing. And I tried and tried and tried and I was losing. But also not only just... I was losing in tennis, but the war has escalated so bad into the whole country. Yeah. You know, and um, between 2000 and between, sorry, 1992 and 1997, we had five military coups and the rebel forces were fighting, you know, and um, uh, over a quarter million Sierra Leoneans lost their life in the war. Yeah. And uh, 2.5 million Sierra Leoneans were refugees worldwide which we had, so that's uh, over a quarter of the population left. And so the country took a terrible beating and the whole world shot, you know, from Sierra Leone. We had sanction and embargo in 1997. And I could remember this story, I tell this a lot, it's in my book, that um, we used to also have another Sierra Leonean Lebanese guy who was uh, Salah Basun, and Salah passed away many years ago. When I was a kid, Salah used to look after us on the tennis courts. He plays tennis and he was an engineer who works for all the embassies. And in 1997, when we had the sanction and embargo because Sierra Leone eats rice, we live on rice and stuff like this, which 70% uh, of the rice we eat comes from Asia. So in 1997, during the sanction and embargo, we'd, we run out of rice. So you could imagine a whole nation you know, had war and now no food. So yeah. people were dying from starvation, especially kids and, you know, uh, all the people were dying. Wow. And so people start eating all kinds of stuff. You know, people eat cats, people start even if people can eat dogs, whatever people really? can eat just to survive because the whole world just completely abandoned Sierra Leone like this. And I remember Salah Basun and, um, came one day with a box in his car because he was looking after all the embassies when they've all, you know, left the country. So he was taking care of all the embassies and stuff. And he brought this box. He said, hey, kids, to all of us, me and my colleagues, say, look, this country, everything is hard. 
there's nothing else but this is what i brought for you so what was it so, uh, it was a uh, cat food so these are cats uh, tins of cat food in a box <coughs> so he brought this uh, for all of us and then i tell you alan that was the best thing ever really? you know oh yes cat because everybody was hungry so we didn't have anything so we actually ate the cat food so and and we had a laugh about that now it's uh we had a laugh about that now me and my colleagues and things but you know that was the only way to survive people always say what does it taste like i said just like cat food <laughs> doesn't didn't taste like chicken yeah. but i guess and if if you're that hungry then yeah i think people don't really understand what people don't understand is about mm. when people say i'm starving no starvation is when you haven't eat for a few days uh, yeah. then you still got few more days when you don't know where the next food is coming from so and i've gone six days without food and just water and um we were so skinny i mean you could count every bone <laughs> in my body so yeah. so it was really tough and um so after 1997 you know with all the killings and everything i've lost few of my family members and then um again in 1998 when i was 16 going through frustration with the war and child soldier was rampant because also 65% of the people fighting the war were kids between the ages of 4 and 16 yeah. so that's where the word child soldier has come from in you know in africa and if you've seen the movie blood diamond which is uh, leonardo dicaprio is the main actor there with right. uh, another uh, african actor who is um Dimon Hanson i think his name is he's from benin he is in so many is in marvel movies and stuff mm -hmm. like that so um so that movie talks about uh, somebody trying to get diamond in Sierra Leone which shows about the child soldier is one of the most brutal war movie you can ever find modern war movie and people have asked me was it that bad i say yeah i was there it was 10 times worse than the movie <laughs> yeah <of laughs> and, and so you know so in 1998 at that time we've gone through five military coup different different military government and uh, democratic government so and um our uh, elected the government was overthrown so in 1998 was overthrown in 1997 so we had that uh, we were under another new military government and so the international world you know UN America Great Britain and all this country come together and said we don't want that military government in power they have to reinstate the democratic elected government back into power so let me explain this now because this is where everything become confusing mm. if you're not in Sierra Leone so during that time we had the rebel force who were known as the RUF Revolutionary United Front right so they're the ones who started the war and and they were backed by Chastelo who also fought and become the president in Liberia so his right hand man was a guy called Fode Sanko so he was a corporal in the Sierra Leone army and also a photographer so he helped Chastelo to fight in Liberia so when Chastelo become president he started supporting Fode Sanko like okay now you go to Sierra Leone you can also extend this there and then we become president for both countries because we neighbors right. so he supported Fode Sanko and Fode Sanko become the rebel leader and then they took up arms which they got there's another movie called Lord of War Nicolas Cage so all these movies are out there and that movie tell you about how the weapons get to Afghanistan other countries also the movie end up in Sierra Leone they tell you how they get the weapons to Sierra Leone because of the resources and stuff so uh, yeah so Fode Sanko got weapon all of a sudden he start recruiting all these young boys 
and girls and then they started fighting they said they were fighting for uh, democracy and equality and to uh, eradicate poverty right but then it turned out they also have other political ambitions as well mm-hmm. so anyway so then now our national army has to fight against the RUF to try and eliminate them and while the war was going on our army wasn't as strong you know by then were well equipped so and then civilians were dying a lot so local farmers who were civilians and more uh, up in the south down in the south and other places they started forming their own civilian forces called the kamajus right. so they take guns and then they start defending their village because by the time the military get there it's too late it's too late they've burned down the village so they started standing up for themselves right. and they, so you have now the national army the RUF and then the Kamajus. So three different force now, and then the Kamajus politicians start going into them, start then using them to, you know, as people always do. Mm. So and then the National Army took power. So what they did was in 1997, uh, they called them AFRC, Army Forces of Provisional Ruling Council. They were called. So they took power. They decided, okay, we've been fighting the rebels for six years, not successful. So now we take power. Let's call them and we form a government. Mm. So you can imagine that the same guys they've been fighting for six years who have killed some of their dads, their colleagues, they decide to bring them to uh, form a coalition uh, government. And when the RAF come into the city, these are the most brutal forces you've ever known right. the, the, the atrocity they were amputating people's hand and burning people alive and all this kind of stuff so you can imagine so now we have these guys running around in the city as part of the government Blimey. so the, the, the national army who was in charge and then they become very scared now because they say oh I think this is a mistake because they find out Fode Sango doesn't want to be vice president he wants to be the president mm. that's what he's been fighting for so they start having different clashes and all this kind of stuff. So now we've got the RAF and the army as a government. We've got the Kamajo. And then the whole world said, and the African Union, we need to get rid of these people. So what do we do? How do we get rid of them? Let's bring the West African army, mm. which is called ECOMOG, Economic Community of West African Monitoring Group. So this ECOMOG, they're like NATO. So right. it's a 16 countries all together in I West see. Africa come together, form a military group. So if there is any problem in each of these NATO, uh, these uh, ECOMOG, uh, ECOWAS country, they would act, you know, to uh, bring stability. Mm. So they're not like UN because they can actually fight. They have the authority to fight, to overthrow the government, to, right, okay. you know. So you can imagine. So the, the forces... Again, 60% plus of the forces in the ECOMOG is Nigerian because Nigeria have the highest population, the biggest military in Africa. And then you have Ghana, Guinea, Liberia, all these other countries have force. So they send them to overthrow the government, the national army, and the rebels and the Kamajus. So Sierra Leone now becomes like a movie, becomes like a Somalia, becomes like, you, I tell you what, it becomes so bad because rebels don't actually have uniform. No. You know, anyone can be a rebel. Kamajos, they have their own, you know, voodoo things, whatever they have in their body and this kind of thing. And then the National Army. And to get rid of them, it was really tough. 
Right. Really, really tough. And that's where so many people lost their lives because now we have carnage. We have international force. We have uh, national force. We have civilian force. We have all kinds of crazy people. So they just start killing every people after people. And I was there in that war. And so many times I got captured. When the Nigerian soldiers, they actually came over, I got captured a few times. And I can remember one of the time I got captured, got tied. They tied both my hands behind my back. And they put a rope between your hands and then they have a stick. So they, every time they turn they it, it's, it tighten, right. and your chest will come out. They hit you on the chest. It sounds like a drum. Right. And this guy is, um, I was only a teenager. You know, I was 15, 16 at that time. Even when I was 15 years old, they were doing this. And this guy had his boots on my head and my hands are tied. I'm on my side. My shoulders are crushing each other. And they had a, what they call the G3. That's the German 3 gun. It's a very terrible gun. The sound of the G3 is scary. And um, so he had the gun over my head and telling me, who do you fight for? What do you do? I said, sir, I'm not a fighter. I'm just a tennis player. I'm just a local kid here. And this poor, this, this not poor guy, these soldiers, they were so brutal with the civilians. They were really, really not all of them, but most yeah. of the foreign soldiers, they were really brutal. They beat the living monkey out of me, my colleagues. You know, when I say they beat you so much to the point where you don't even have voice, they mute you completely. Mm. They'll beat you that bad that you can't even speak. Mm. Uh, even if you want to cry, you have no voice left because, you know, there's nothing. And I can remember one time I was getting beat. My mom was actually standing watching this and I could see my mom in tears, but there's nothing she could do. She can't tell the soul to stop it because they can pull the trigger whenever they want. Yeah. You know, so this was really terrible. But then in 1998, Valentine's Day, that was February 14. I could remember I was tired, sleeping in that morning. So the, the attack happened in Hill Station because I live half a mile away from the presidential lodge. That's where the tennis court is. And then um, Alimami uh, has come out and um, he was coming from somewhere running home. And he noticed he couldn't find me around. So... Obviously, he knew I sleep a lot and run into the little place where we sleep. And he tapped me on the shoulder. He was knocking me and said, PJ, you got to wake up. And so wake me up and go, what happened? All I could hear is missile just whistling from one end of the city to the yeah. other. And then so because of the military intervention and um, AK-47, RPGs, all kinds of things. It's almost like in a war movie. And so anyway, put my clothes on, run outside, you know, came out on the tennis court and on the road, me and Alimami stood there trying to figure out where are we going to go from here because there is carnage coming from everywhere. So while we stood there, there was a friend of ours called Farrell. Farrell lives a little bit just up the tennis court. So he was running down and he come, he said to me, he called me PJ because I stood uh, in front of Alimami like this and he stood behind me. So we're all just thinking, we need to get out of here, but where do we go? There's bomb coming from here. There's shooting coming from everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's missile, and we can see the Sierra Leone army. They're just running all over the place, but everybody's so confused. And Farrell said, uh, PJ, do you see, come and see the bomb explosion on this side? Because we live up the hill, so there's a military jet called the Alpha Jet. Right. So it's a Nigerian jet. They used to try and bomb all the the military, they're trying to bomb the military base, which was also half a mile away from the tennis court. 
And then there was a FM station up uh, something called Leicester Peak. Leicester Peak is a very, the highest peak in Sierra Leone. Right. Uh, no, in Freetown, the capital city. So they're trying to bomb that FM station because they said it was a propaganda station that was the military was using. Wow, so okay. they keep missing. The jet will fly and then drop this bomb and then the bomb will miss and fall somewhere else and then boom, explosion. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I took a few steps to go and see this explosion and less than 15 seconds, all of a sudden, I had a rapid AK-47 just behind me. And you know, because we've lived in the war for so long, when I had the, the sound of the AK-47, you can tell that was hitting somebody. Mm. But they always said in the war, which is true, if you hear the gunshots, the bullet is not going to kill you. The one that kills you, you don't even hear it. And so I had... Da -da 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 -da. So turn around. Alimami has been hit so many times on the chest. And I tell you, Alan, I've had so many painful things. But to see somebody who is my superhero, who has encouraged me to play tennis, is because of him that I have dreams. It's because of him that I learned to play even better tennis because I was so competitive. I want to always beat him playing those barefoot hand tennis, barefoot board bat tennis. And we go to school together. We live together. We, he become like my brother. In fact... Mm. I would say 99% of people in Sierra Leone actually thought we were brothers because we also look alike, which was quite funny. <laughs> and so, yeah, so seeing my friend on Valentine's Day, you know, taking a bullet, a lot of bullets like this, and I watched him fall down and took his last breath was something unbearable. And this, yeah. for me, that really kills me. I think for a week I couldn't eat, I couldn't yeah. sleep. And... Um, I saw the, the, the military truck, they came in and they pick his body up and they just throw him in the military truck like that and never saw where they buried him because uh, during that time, because of the war and the situation, they were putting people in mass graves. So because they don't have time to go find family members whose child is being shot, whose this being shot, they just put them together, take them somewhere, yeah. God knows where, and then they put everybody in a mass grave and just bury them like that. And, and uh, that also was the key turning point of my life. And when I look on the other side of the road with all this bullet that was going on, with all the shooting, how my mom is still alive, I don't know. She stood there just looking at me because my mom saw us coming down. So my mom followed us because she, my mom always is very protective. Mm. But as a teenager, we thought we were invisible. We thought, ah, it's okay, bullet will never touch us. We felt like that because, yeah. you know, I was 16. It, it was even a in that situation. Yeah, even in that situation, we felt, you know, I don't know what was going through our head as a kid, but I, all I could remember is my mom is always telling me, stop going there, sit home, do this. And as a teenager, I go like, no, mom, I'm fine, don't worry. You know, these yeah. are old parents, they're just so scared. You become so immune to the bullet sound and everything. You're not that afraid of the gun itself. Wow. And you know that anytime you're going to die anyway. So it's not a thing that, you know, uh, the fear of dying almost is just not too important anymore. Mm. So, and seeing my mom stood there, you know, really looking at me in my face, I could see the tears running down in her eyes and I was crying as well. My mom didn't say anything. She was just looking at me, really looking at me. And I saw that fearfulness on my mom's face. A look that even up to now when I see that look, it just gives me, it makes my hair rose in my body. And I knew exactly what my mom was thinking. You know, without saying a word, I knew she was thinking, I don't want this to happen to you. 
Ah, you, I need to get it, but I was growing up and stronger, so my mom obviously couldn't physically just drag me. I was 16 years old now. I was yeah. almost like a man. And so that's when I promised myself. So I'm looking at my mom's face and I'm looking at my friend on the floor lying in this pool of blood. And one of the things I wrote in my book when I did the second part, um, I wrote a poem for my friend which says, I was standing there, I had the gunshots, I had the screaming, I could smell the fresh blood. And um, bet- between a split second, uh, a standing man is gone. And that was written because of my friend, you know, because I actually smell the fresh blood is something that will never disappear from my memory. When you actually smell somebody, the blood that somebody being just killed, the fresh one. Mm. And I look at the color. I saw it. I had the gunshot and I was standing there. And in a blink of eye, a standing man is gone. My friend has been killed. The war has truly started. So that's a poem I wrote for him. And in the beginning of the second part of my book. So... You know, so when people, uh, you know, ask me this, I said that was a turning point because I promised myself and my mom I would never want to see that look on her face again. And I realized I wasn't invisible. I realized that, yes, anyone could get killed. And I promised I'm going to do whatever it takes to be serious, to play tennis, to never be this careless anymore and never to upset my mom. And I would do everything in my power to be uh, successful so I can make Halimami proud and my mom. So yeah, so yeah. that was, yeah, yeah. it's it's it's, you know, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. First of all, obviously, you go in yeah. more in depth in your book about it. Yeah, um, but having that taken from you right in front of your eyes, um, is is no words. Is the I mean, being in that that atmosphere and that surroundings, the war that you went through, and you know, just to, to hear from you saying that you know a gunshot didn't phase you. You were used to these things yeah. just being around you. It's just, you, know, you, you come back and think about our lives here and how, you know, how lucky we are. Um, something that you said as well, I think that's something that's quite grounding as well, is that you said when you were um, on the floor and you'd been captured and you said to someone, um, with the person that captured you, yeah. you on the floor and said, I'm just a tennis player. Yeah. But look at where you are now. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, that's... that's a truly incredible uh, monumental part of it i think you, you, what makes you so humble and the person you are today um and i think you're inspire, inspiring many others with with what you're doing right now and you know yeah anyway i'll stop talking I'll, we'll go into, into, into the next point yeah it's 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 a it's a very good point alan because i think sometime uh i was doing a documentary for bbc and i remember saying they asked me something about war and i said when people fight war, empathy is lost. Humility is lost. Mm-hmm. You know, because when somebody have a gun, when things come, push, come to push, they will use it by all means necessary because war is about surviving. And I wrote a thing about bullets in my new book. I wrote a thing about war. That's why when I see what's happening in between Ukraine and Russia, it's not, you know, uh, my heartfelt go to the people of uh, Ukraine, but also to the people of Russia, because it's not just Ukrainian dying. There's Russian people also dying. So this is something we need to talk about, that the government who fight war, who create this war, the people who ambition with business create the war, they don't suffer. It's always the innocent people like, you know, myself being in that situation, losing my friends, uncles, you know, aunties, loved ones. And I see it every day how so many people are being killed, you know, even though they know nothing about the war. 
and this kind of stuff. So when this guy had his boots with me and I had the strength to answer to him back and he's asking me, who do you fight for? Like, I don't even know how to fight. I can't shoot a gun mm. and I'm just a tennis player. All I want to do is to play tennis. I don't want yeah. anything else. You know, so um, so this is why the name of our, I'll talk about why my book is called How Tennis Saved My Life in a Minute. So going back to after Alimami's death, and that completely was a bigger change for me that I need to do something with my life. So um, in October, that's eight months after Alimami passed away, the government was reinstated back into power. We've lost, uh, within that week, we've lost over 13,000 people. And within the whole time they, they tried to capture the city, there was 25, 35,000 people being killed. You know, so a lot of people died. I know in Google, when you Google, they don't tell you all this thing because uh, the whole world tried to keep this because people ask a question, how come so many people were dying and nobody talks about this? So the numbers you will see on the internet is not accurate because they keep it very low so mm. people don't know the real truth of how many people died in the war. So, and so, yeah, so the national coach, who is also one of my heroes, and um, he actually lives now in London, and Dave Mosse, his name is Dave Mosse, and he called me and he said, look, PJ, you're one of my favorite players. You fought so many years. I would love to see you one day wear this national tracksuit. But I was also becoming a bit nervous because I was over 16 years old, and once you go to 18, you can never play junior tennis anymore. Right, and okay. the senior tennis, the Davis Cup, another thing, they, they were trying to put it together, but there was no money for that. So the only chance I had was to start with the junior. And if you want to make it to senior, you got to play some junior tennis and to get the experience. I was playing national junior tennis, but internationally, it's a whole different level together. So the coach told me, he said, well, the ITF has sent us an invitation, you know, to travel. And he told me this in October. So I'm going to organize a little tournament and then a round robin to get the two players that we want. I would have just choose you to go, but that would be unfair to the others. So mm. you have to compete. So keep training. So I started training, hitting in the wall, and I got myself prepared. So I remember again, so the round row, we got to the round robin stage where they choose the eight best player. They did the first 16, and then we eliminate all those uh, eight of the other boys. So and then they put us in four now. So it's four people in one box, another four people in one box. Right. So we have the number one seed in the group A, and then group B, they have the number two seed. I was number three, so I end up being with the number two seed. And guess who the number two seed is? The same guy who I've been losing to all this time. Who's <laughs> no the best player, yeah. <laughs> so we're in this bracket. So number one box, a guy called Sapulum, and he, I wrote about him in my book. He's already qualified, so he won, his, he won all his three matches. Mm -hmm. So me and Gabriel Amare, his name is, who has been my nemesis and my arch rival and um so me and him we've won two each so the final match for the final qualification which it would make it more there's so much pressure has to be either me or him right and mind you i was over 16 gabriel has played many international tournaments so he is well experienced that's why he was the number two mm -hmm. the number one was so good he was well ahead of us and um so my job now is to try and beat him for the first time yeah we trained together, we went to the same school, he was a very smart kid and also very slim and tall, same height as me, six foot two. And, and I remember what changed that day. In fact, our match was canceled uh, the day because it was getting dark. So the coach said, no, we can't put your match. So the final match we played the following day, mm. which was a weekend. So 
Uh, I remember walking four miles from my home to the tennis court at the stadium and thinking to myself, okay, so I really don't care about this track suit anymore. I don't care about any 250 US dollar. This don't mean anything to me because that's what was causing the pressure for me. Because right, every time I get to that stage, I'm worried about, I want this money. I was too desperate for the money and the tracksuit. So now my mentality changed. Mm. So what changed was I said, I want to do Alimami proud. Right. So this is going to be a war between me and Gabriel. This is, I, I mean, I don't like to use the word war, but no. that's what it was for me at that time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to fight. I'm going to do whatever it takes. If it means I have to break my leg, my hands, my head, I don't care. Yeah, but I should not leave this place today as losing. But because this is my last opportunity, if I would have lost that one, then I wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you about tennis. Yeah, right. you know. So I have to, I have to really do whatever it takes. I really have to fight hard. So anyway, I went in, and uh, yeah. So it was one set all, and we're going back and forth, back and forth in the third set. But every time we had a changeover. I was sit for the one minute break. All I was thinking was Alimami. I'm looking into the sky and I said, yeah, he will be there. I'm not giving in. And because of my strength and my height, I become one of the biggest server in my country. You know, so mm-hmm. I serve really well. That's one of my biggest strengths, my forehand, my speed and my volleys. Mm-hmm. So I remember until we were five all in the third set, the final set. Yeah. And we're going back and forth. My opponent was not showing any sign of nerves. Until we got to five all, that's when he double faults in the first serve. He was right. serving. Yeah, yeah. And then I end up uh, winning a few points and he makes some other mistake. And then I realized he was really nervous. That was the only time I've seen him nervous. He was playing free all the time. And then I end up breaking him to go 6-5. So all I have to do is after the changeover, yeah. it's just to serve and win four points, which of course I got a big serve. And I could remember it right now as I'm talking. This is like it happened this morning. Really? It's that clear in my head. Yeah. And I remember sitting down and I'm thinking to myself, I didn't look at him. I didn't want to even cross high with him. All I'm thinking, I'm looking and saying, yeah, Alimami, Alimami, Alimami. And at that time, my sister as well, who was helping me, I said, this for Alimami and my sister. I'm going to do this. Close my eyes and I pick the balls. And the balls were so hot and so fade. Because when the ball is fed, it has not much grip. But if yeah. you're serving, it's good for you because new balls and bad balls are always good to serve with because it favors the server. So I remember going there and then when I stood behind the line, talk about nerves. Oh my goodness. Yeah. My hands started shaking. My legs were shaking. I felt jelly. I felt I've, feeling I've never had before. No. You know, and this time because now you're almost 90% at grabbing your dreams to become true. Yeah. But then my head started going 200 miles an hour in thinking, what if, what happened, what this? And then I said to myself, not today. I'm not having this, not today. I don't care whatever happened. I just need to think that I got the biggest serve. So I remember throwing the first serve, boom. One, that second one, boom. Third one, I just keep winning myself. And then I was 40 love. And then the nervousness even come more this time. Of course. <laughs> so now it's 99.9% I'm there. And I'm thinking, I don't want this ball to come back over the net. I got to do whatever I have to do. And I remember taking a deep breath. And then, um, so I was serving left, right, left, right. And I said, okay, 
One of the most unsportmanlike conduct serve you can do in tennis is when you serve the ball straight directly at the person. It's like in cricket when you see somebody who's uh, bowled the ball and you go and hit the, the players and yeah. try to get out of it. So I was good at that, but I you don't use it very much because it's considered to be unsportmanlike. It's yeah. almost like trying to hit somebody. But sometimes it's not against the rule. No, no. But through consciousness, we tend not to do it very much. But when we're desperate, we can get it out. So anyway, I decided, well, I haven't done this body serve yeah. for a long while. Why not blast it like one of them missile at him and see what happened? So that's exactly what I did. And I put every ounce of muscle into that serve and go for the speed. Nothing tactical, whatever, just straight yeah. at him. And I blast that one so hard. Probably the hardest serve I ever hit at that time. And he tried to get out of the way. So his racket on the back end just tipped the ball. And right. the ball floats up in the air. I mean, talk about Michael Jordan can slam dunk. I was up in the air with that ball. Bloom. And bounce it. And it bounced over the 12-foot fence. Wow. And the dream, I tell you, I've never cried so much in my life. And I was down, yeah. I bet it almost went slow motion for you. It went slow motion. I cried. I, I immediately stand down, look at my coach, my colleague, look at the coach. And Gabriel, to be fair with him, he had one of the most genuine smiles. He can be sarcastic. He's a very provocative kid. He's mm. my, like one of my closest friends ever. He's really struggling, struggling with mental health as I'm talking to you now. Is really going through bad mental health. So, you know, so uh, Gabriel come up to me, he looked and he winked at me and then he smiled, but I could tell it was a genuine smile. Yeah. You know, uh, and one of the things I, I learned is that nothing in this world is given to you for free. And I used to say, why wouldn't this guy let me win? He got a good family. Everything is paid for him. He got brothers and sisters living in England. He doesn't struggle like me. Nope, nobody will give you anything. Yeah. He was as competitive as any other thing. And to beat him at that critical time, the, the, the time I was on a thin line at that time to beat him and come through. And he actually congratulated me and wished me good luck. I thought that was really good. And that even made me cry more yeah, to see him actually yeah. in the end almost happy for me because even though he wouldn't give it to me, but he, he said, you really like you earned this. And make sure you enjoy it because he's been a lot on the trip in the national team. So he knows the benefits he comes with. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, so I was crying and I, I cried all the way through, again, that four-mile walk. You know, uh, different to 95 because Gabriel beat me. I cried four-mile walking with the shoes laced to my neck. But this time I did the same walking, yeah. but it's a different cry. It's a cry yeah. of joy. It's a of cry joy. of... Yeah you know, emotions that I've lost my friend. And I remember going, looking into this guy and said, how proud this guy, Almami, will be there for me. And I said to him, wow. this is for you. And so, yeah. So anyway, that was my fortune turning points. And then uh, December 20th, that's when the, the, we're supposed to leave uh, Sierra Leone to go for the, for the first tournament in Ghana. Mm -hmm. And the second leg was in Togo and then Nigeria. So, um, yeah, everything was going on. But then the war got even worse at that time. Right. So the military government and the rebels that they overthrown had decided to launch another comeback. So they nicknamed it Operation No Living Thing. Oh. Yes. Christ. Because they got so angry, the National Army, they felt embarrassed. They felt angry that how can a foreign troop come and kick them out of their own country? Yeah. So they announced that they are coming back and they're coming with vengeance. And everybody who's supporting Welcome ECOMOG, they're not going to spare anyone. 
So operation no living thing, meaning dog, cats, human, anyone, they're going to trash it because now they, they combine with the rebels. Mm. So, so yeah, so things were getting worse for the, for the, it was getting even worse than it was before. So there was a lot of fear in the country. So anyway, I remember the 28th of December, 1998, we were scheduled to leave Sierra Leone. So that was a Sunday. And then on the 13th of November, uh, uh, sorry, uh, December, 13th of December, excuse me, we're supposed to, uh, that's a week before we leave on the 20th of December. So the 13th, it was a Sunday morning. We sat, uh, me and uh, 12 other of my colleagues, we sat, uh, we stood outside the tennis court talking about football. Mm. I can't remember, was it World Cup time that we were talking about something to do with football? And we were there, and all of a sudden, turned to my left, saw a convoy of military convoy coming towards us. Some 4x4 cars and some military truck and men in guns and with HMG and LMG at the top. You know, I'm naming all these weapons because <laughs> when you grow up in the war, mm. you can identify any any weapon, what yeah. they are and what they can do. So anyway, and uh, we stood there and as soon as we saw them, they were coming towards us. But that means uh, they were going to the president. The president, like I said, is ha less than half a mile away from the tennis court. Right. So they were going there and then we just parted. So half of us, right, the others left so that the, the convoy can pass. So whilst they were passing, me being the, the clown in the group, I put my hands like this and I'm waving to the guys because I was excited. I know I got a week more to leave my country. So I'm super excited waving for them. And they left. So we continue talking about football. And two minutes later, a military truck turned up and they just captured all of us. So that concludes part one of this two-parter episode with Sam. Um, we have left that on somewhat of a cliffhanger because obviously finally about to play tennis for his country and he get, goes and gets captured. So um, I thought a, a great place to kind of break off here and go for two the part two next week. So if you're enjoying this, please do give this a, a share on your socials um, give the episode a comment and a rating and a review and subscribe it really does help the, the podcast out. Um, obviously we're very humbled and lucky to be able to have Sam on here with us sharing his, his journey, what he's been through to get to where he is today, truly humbled and, and incredible individual. Um, and we're very lucky to have him on here sharing his stories so far. So below, I will be sharing the link to his, uh, to his book, which you can purchase on Amazon, his first one and his new book too. And also some of the charity work that he does as well. So, um, be sure to tune in this time next week where part two will be up and we'll find out the rest of his journey so far. Again, thank you for listening. That is a wrap and I'll catch you guys next week. You take it easy. Bye.